If you're a guest with us this morning, my name is Joe. I'm the lead pastor here at Providence, and we are in a series on how the church is to be structured, uh, how it's to be led. You can read a little bit about that in your sermon guide, how, uh, you know, what we've been going through. And so two weeks ago, we sought to answer the question, like, why elders? If, if, if we're to be elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed, well, why, where's this elder thing coming through? What is that about? Why have elders and why is there a plurality? Why are there multiple elders? So we did that two weeks ago. And then last week we talked about what do they do? Uh, what do they do? How do they, what is it that they actually do? And we talked about the fact that they're, they're pastors, they're overseers, they're bishops. There's all these different words. There's three Greek words that all mean the same thing, just different kind of stripes of the same thing. And so we talked about, you know, why, and we've talked about what they do. And today, while, while the title of the message is, is how are elders qualified and chosen, really the, the question today is, is who? Like, who are they? Who are elders? What, what qualifies them? What, what, what are their qualifications? How are they chosen? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And on how they're chosen, Scripture seems to indicate that elders appoint elders. So Acts chapter 14, verse 23 and when they, and the they here is Paul and Barnabas, they've planted churches, now they're coming back through and they are doing this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Titus 1.5 that John read a little earlier ago, Paul's writing to Titus, this is called a pastoral epistle, he's part of the pastorals, Timothy and Titus, writing this letter to Titus and he tells Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so again, Scripture seems to indicate that elders appoint elders. Now, I think they should be approved by the church. I think the church should you know, sign off on that. I think that Scripture kind of hints at that a little bit. But this is no committee of, that's just you know, elected on, on um, popular vote. This is the leadership of the church. This is the shepherds of the church who have to meet an extensive list of qualifications that we're about to go through here in just a few minutes. They have to be thoroughly questioned, thoroughly examined, interviewed, known, mined into their hearts. And that's the responsibility of the elders. And so elders appoint elders. Now the church, again, absolutely needs to sign off on their shepherds. They need to approve them. And I think the church has a place to, to recommend possible elders. Hey, I, I see this guy and he's, he's shepherding already. This looks like an elder. I think there's a place for that. But ultimately, elders appoint elders. But who are they to appoint? Right? Like what, what are these guys who will you know, be put before the congregation and the congregation will vote yes or no on whether these will be your shepherds? Who are these, what, are, what are these guys to look like? And we're going to go 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's on page 643 in the Bibles around you. I encourage you to go there because there's a lot of describers, a lot of qualifications. We're going to walk through them one by one. And so let's do this since uh, you've been sitting for a while. Why don't we stand together 
When we stand together in the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter three, I'm going to read it all and then we'll go through it slowly. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, all right, that's a synonym for elder. This is episkopos. You use presbyteros or poimen. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, same thing as elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that they may not fall, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You guys can be seated. He goes on and talks about uh, deacons after that. But when you just read this, you know, thinking about, you know, who are these guys supposed to be? And you look at this section of Scripture, it becomes very, very apparent easily that what matters most in the life of an elder, in the life of an overseer, is character. That character is what matters the most. That character counts. Okay? Character matters in all leaders, but especially in the church. All of these things are... Almost all of these things are character traits. And so Paul is saying, you know, that in the church, the way shepherds live their lives is far more important than what they actually do. The example that they set. And so here we have this summary. This list isn't exhaustive, but it is kind of a starting point. But before I get into the Specific qualifications that are called out here, there's kind of, if you were reading the text closely, or you've looked at my notes and you see he has to, he has to, he has to, there's kind of an elephant in the room we need to talk about, and that is the fact that elders are to be male only. Okay, elders are to be male only. Deacons, that's debatable. The Greek is very loose with the word gune there in verse 11. But elders it is explicitly clear, are to be male only. Now, I need you to listen real carefully to me. Real carefully. This has nothing to do with gifts or abilities. All right? This has nothing to do with gifts or abilities. This has to do with God's design. His design for human flourishing on the earth. both in the church and in the home. And so this is not saying that women don't have leadership abilities, that they don't have teaching abilities. It's not saying it has nothing to do with gift set. I've met plenty of women who are far smarter than I am, far more gifted than I am, far better communicators of the word than I am. My wife can say in one sentence what takes me a page. And so there's nothing negative being said here about women. This is just part of God's very good design pre-fall, before sin ever entered the world, equal worth. 
equal value, male and female, equal worth, equal value, completely, just different roles. And the roles, one's not better than the other, one's not more valued, they're just different. The husband's to be a servant leader, and the wife is to be a help meter, and they work together, they complement, that's the word, complement each other. And it's the same in the church. And so this has to do with God's design. That's why this is not cultural to, to Paul's time only. It has to do with God's design. Genesis 1 and 2. And so it holds true for all time. And if you want to unpack that a little bit more, I guess it's about two years ago I preached a sermon on gender and roles. As we were going through Genesis, you can go back and grab that podcast and listen to it. But elders are to be men. And they're to be the type of men under which women flourish. And if women aren't flourishing underneath them, they're the wrong men. And so what do these men look like? What are the qualifications? Well, the qualifications are, are letter A. Here we go. He has to have a proper desire for the office. A proper desire for the office. Look at verse 1 again. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires... To the office, okay, notice that, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so one of the qualifications is that there has to be a, a proper desire for the office. Not desiring it in terms of position, in terms of status, in terms of having a place, having authority, being looked up to in some ways. If that's the case, automatically disqualified. If you want it for power, especially if you want it for power in a little church of like 250 people, that's sad. Okay? But if you want it for power or something like that, disqualified. But the proper desire that he's talking about here is not position, but the work. The work of eldering, of shepherding. I mean, look at what, that's what Paul is getting at in verse 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder seer, he desires, all right, what he desires, this is it. He wants a noble task, literally a good work. So he's desiring work. That's what he desires. He desires the work of eldering. So that Paul's concerned about you know, the work, the function of an elder, not the status or the title of an elder. He's saying that the first qualification for being an elder is that a man would desire to do the spiritual work of shepherding a flock, a church. That's the desire. The call of an elder is not power and authority. The call of an elder is death, sacrifice, and slavery to the church. Serving the church. Now, is eldering an honorable thing? Absolutely it is. It's a very honorable thing. Scriptures tell us to esteem our elders very highly, especially those who preach and teach the Word. It's what it tells us. Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president of um, the U.S., was once asked after being the president what the greatest honor of his life had ever been. So here's the president. And he said that the greatest honor of his life that he had ever had was being named an elder in his local Presbyterian church. And so it's an honorable thing. 
But the thing that Paul is driving at here is not, you know, not, not for a man that aspires that honor, but he aspires and he desires to do the work. He desires to serve the people of God by shepherding the people of God for the glory of God. And so he's ready to die so that others might live. He's ready to serve so that others might flourish. And you can see this in a man. You can see this in how he talks. You can see this in how he studies his Bible. You can see this in how he prepares to teach when he has the opportunity. You can see how they're faithful in attendance and in serving the church and what the church is already doing. That they gather, they grow, they serve, they go. They're committed to worshiping and enjoying God and leading others to do the same. They desire to do that kind of work. But not only do they desire to, to do that, they must also be, and this is letter B, he also has to be above reproach. Above reproach. Now that is an umbrella term under which pretty much everything else in verses 2 and 3 roll up underneath. All right, verses two and three are kind of like a commentary on that word above reproach. Because in, in, in the you know, character, again, it's all about character. And Jesus is our example. Jesus is our chief shepherd. He is our chief elder. And so above, you know, being above reproach is really all about holiness. Not that these guys are to be perfect. But they're committed to living for Christ. They are to be godly men. Not perfect men, because those don't exist. But godly men. They should be awesome repenters. Really excellent repenters. And they should be repenting constantly. Because they recognize their sinfulness. And they're, just, and they're wrapped up in a lifelong pursuit of holiness. Stumbling forward desperately relying on the forgiveness of Christ and on the Holy Spirit to transform them. And so verses 2 and 3, like I said, they kind of roll out the commentary on what, this, what, what above reproach is. So let's kind of make our way through that. Look at verse 2 with me again. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Now, to be clear, there's a lot of debate about what this means. Some people will be like, well, he's con condemning polygamy here. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Jewish people had already recognized that polygamy that was practiced before was sin and they had stopped that practice. This, it wasn't going on anymore. And so if polygamy was something that already was not being practiced, that would be kind of weird for Paul to, to call it out here. It would be kind of like us saying, okay, one of our standards for being an elder at Providence is that you not be a cannibal. Now, I'm not planning to put forward any cannibals. But I don't think we have to call that out, right? Because it's, it's not happening. And so that's kind of what... what and so, so I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Some people will be like, well, he, that, this means that he has to be married, um, you know, to be the husband of one wife. He has to be married, so singles are therefore out. Well, that's problematic as well, because Paul was single. And he wrote, singleness is to be preferred because you can do more for the glory of God. And if that's the case, Jesus was also single, so he can't be our chief elder if he's not married. So I don't think that's what Paul's after. I don't think that's what he's communicating. 
Some people will be like, well, this means that a, that a man can never have been divorced. Like if he's ever been divorced at any point in his life, then he's automatically disqualified. But there's some arguments for that. But it seems here, what, what this is getting after, like the flow of all this, is that the, the default position that, that Paul's talking about is like presently. Are you presently this way? Because I, I don't think, I don't think, he, he, he would argue if you've ever been addicted to wine, you're out. If you've ever not been respectable, you're automatically out. If you've ever not been hospitable, you're automatically out. If you've ever not led your family well, you're automatically out. But I think it seems to be presently, if you are presently respectable, and it seems to be perhaps that for marriage as well. And so those things are debatable. We'll have to flesh those out as it relates to our bylaws and constitution. But the main idea, the main idea here is that an elder is to be a one woman kind of man. That's what it literally means. A one woman kind of man, fully devoted to one woman. Not fantasizing about others. Not lusting after others, not engaged in sexual immorality, but devoted to one woman. I love the story that I heard told about Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill had some amazing, amazing guys. He had some weird things as well, but an amazing, amazing individual. And he was once asked that if he could not be who he was, who would it that he would most want to be? And so he's sitting there next to, to his wife who he doted on and loved. And he thought for a moment, and then he looked up and he said, if I could not be who I am, who I would most want to be, and he grabbed his wife's hand, it would be Lady Churchill's second husband. That's a one-woman man. That's a man who's devoted to one woman. And so, an overseer must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Okay, so the idea here, respectable, is that he's someone whose life can be respected and it can be admired. And so he's sober-minded. There, there's not some gap between how he sees himself and how he actually is. As one pastor put it, there are no first three episodes of American Idol for an elder. He, he has to see himself as he really is is. He has to understand where he's weak. He has to understand where he's strong. He has to be dialed into how God made him be. And so, you know, they're not to be an I can sing and the rest of us are saying, brother, please don't. <laughs> he sees himself well. He understands. He knows himself. He doesn't think differently about himself than reality is. And he's self-controlled. He's not a hothead. He's not a guy who blows up very easily. He's not a guy who's controlled by other things. He's temperate, as other translations put, sober-minded. He's been mastered by God. And he's hospitable. Hospitable. And this is not talking about Martha Stewart and he knows how to do a place setting. Okay? And just for the record, and to be honest with you, I still don't know where things go on a plate. Sarah and I go out to a fancy restaurant and I have to whisper, which fork do I start with? And she has to tell me. And so Paul's not talking about hospitality in the Martha Stewart co-opted sense. He's talking about recognizing that all you've been given, all that's been entrusted to you, 
has been given to you by God in order that you might use it for kingdom purposes. And so your home is to be an open home. A home of warmth. A home where your neighbors are are familiar and comfortable because they're there. Hospitality is inviting people into your life and into your world so that the things that you want to, to teach them not only you know, can, like, are to be heard and taught, but by being in your life, they're seen and caught. He has to be able to teach. We're going to come back to that one in a moment. Not a drunkard. That's just a general rule. Drunks don't make good elders. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. So an elder can't be someone who's quick-tempered, who has anger issues. He's got to be sober-minded. You know, he's got to be even-keeled. He's got to be temperate. We've got to have a self-mastery of themselves. Proverbs speaks much to this. And so they can't be angry people, and they also can't be contrarians. Just a guy whose who's pride is such that he's the constant contrarian. Like he may not even believe in this, but he's going to argue this because someone else is arguing this and he just wants to oppose that and digs his heels in. That's not an elder, that's a child. And so elders need to not like conflict. If they like it, that's a problem. But if conflict needs to happen and they avoid it, that's a problem. Elders need to be men who don't like conflict but aren't afraid to engage when they have to. And then finally, this subcategory of above reproach, not a lover of money. It doesn't say you can't have money, can't earn money, but it does say he can't love it. Some of the wealthiest people I know do not love their money. But it is hard to have a lot of money and not love it. It's also hard to be poor and not be a lover of money. Because you see that as your salvation. You see that if I could just get that, I'd be happy, I'd be whole, I'd be out of this mess I'm in. So an elder cannot be a lover of money. So summing all that up, an elder has to be above reproach. All right, Letter C, he's got to be able to teach. This is the one we skipped just a moment ago. He's got to be able to teach. And here's the thing I want you to notice about this. Very important to notice this. About, this is the only ability that Paul calls out for an elder to have. There's no other ability that Paul calls out for an elder to have. This is it. Everything else is a character trait. This is the only ability. He has to have the ability to teach. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to do what I do. I think some of them might stand up here. I think some of them might preach to you occasionally. But that doesn't mean every single one's necessarily gifted to do that. But it does mean they have to be able to teach, whether that's in front of, you know, a couple hundred, or if that's in front of dozens, or if that's in front of one, one-on-one discipleship. He has to be able to communicate the gospel, explain the scriptures. Someone comes and has a question, he can explain it in a way that they can understand. He can teach the scriptures. Got to be able to disciple. And that's just kind of logical because what did Jesus, what's his great commission to go and make what? Disciples of all the nations, teaching them, right? To do, so, so if you are going to lead a church to be disciples that are making disciples, you better be able to make disciples. You better be able to teach 
and disciple people. Letter D, he has to lead his family well. Let's read through this again. Verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. All right, Pugna- Not pugnacious is another word that's used there in other translations. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And here we go, he has to be able to lead his family well. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so here's the deal. The home is the proving ground for ministry. Why is that? Because few things for a man, according to the Word of God, cover to cover, are going to put the man against his flesh like the call to be a godly husband and to be a godly father. When I got married, I thought I was a decent Christian. I was trying to live for the Lord, stumbling forward. I got married and I suddenly realized I am so selfish. And then I had a kid. And then I had another one, and another one, and another one. I have a selfish problem, obviously, because God keeps giving me these kids. But there's nothing that presses on you like your family. There's, There's no, you know, there are few sanctifying forces as strong as that, for a man in particular. And parents and fathers cannot control the conversion of their kids, but they can do all that they can do to lay kindling around and beg the Lord to ignite that kindling and birth the love of Christ in their hearts. And so as a, as a, as a husband and as a father, I, I should love my family well. Not perfectly because I won't and I don't. But well. And if I'm not doing it at least well, if my tongue is abusive, you should fire me. If my hands are abusive, you should have me arrested. The home is the proving ground. And to be clear on this, I want to make sure I'm clear. Good leadership does not mean that your home is absent of difficulty. but it's the navigation and the handling of the problems when they come that determines good leadership. Good leadership doesn't mean your home is free from difficulty. Church is never going to be free. In the home, we get to see how you navigate those waters, how you deal with those waters, how you lead well in the midst of difficulty. That's the measure of a good leader. And so love your wife, love your family, if you don't love them, if you don't serve them, if you're not willing to die for them and and put your preferences aside, why should the church think that you're willing to do that for them? And so he's got to have a proper desire. He has to be above reproach. He has to be able to teach. He has to lead his family well. And letter E, he has to be mature in the faith. Look at verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so elders need to be old in the faith, even if they're not chronologically, age-wise. It's all about maturity, not age. 
The, the rule here is they have to be mature in the faith, not a recent convert. So it's the exact opposite of what American evangelicalism does a lot of times when a pro athlete or some superstar has a conversion experience and comes to Christ. What a lot of times they do is like, oh, so-and-so came to Christ. Well, let's get him a book deal and let's put him on a traveling tour so he can go preach to everybody. And then six months to a year later, you've got to go back and clean up heresy or gross immorality. Because you put a baby Christian out there as like the spokesperson for the church universal. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not the way this goes down. Like all of these character qualities that are listed here, they've got to be proven, and it takes a long time for these to, to, you know, to be proven and to take root in people's lives. It doesn't just happen overnight. And, and that's an important thing to keep in mind, just brothers and sisters, just not even talking about elders for a minute, just brothers and sisters in the church. We've got to keep in mind that it takes time like just because someone's sanctification is not happening at the rate that you think it should be happening at doesn't mean that it's not happening at all and so we need to be patient and we need to be gracious with one another but don't make them elders matt chandler said it well the office of elder is not a training ground for men with potential elders must be proven to be mature Letter F, he has to have a good reputation with all. He has to have a good reputation with all. We've already you know, seen the word respectable, but now look at verse 7. Moreover, he must be thought well of, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into dis- disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so this is pretty fascinating because what Paul just said is that it's not the folks inside the church who have to like the guy, but it's the folks outside the church who need to have respect for the guy. They have to know that he's the real deal. Now, they may hate his guts for his beliefs. They may disagree with him on all sorts of things, but as it relates to his reputation, as it relates for his love and his care for them, and others, as it relates for how he loves his family and how he loves his wife and how he serves his neighbor, they've got nothing but respect. I mean, an elder is to be basically someone who, you know, he's not to be a guy who when people in the community find out that he's an elder in their church, they go, really? Are you kidding me? That should never happen. That, that's not, an elder's not to be that guy. They are to be the same person in the church that they are in the community. And if they're not, we pray for their sanctification, but they're disqualified from the position of being an elder. And so that's the kind of the great big long list of what elders must be. Okay, it's a high calling. But on the flip side, I want you to notice I want you to notice this as well, and this is going to be number two in your notes. The qualifications are nothing extraordinary. On the one side, it's a high calling. On the other side, they're really nothing extraordinary. Like when all is said and done, what we have here is just the result of progressive sanctification. 
of people becoming more and more and more like Christ. There's nothing crazy listed here. There's no, you know, wrestling of alligators. There's no call to shut the mouths of lions, to climb to the top of Everest, to take a pilgrimage to holy cities or holy relics. No visions that you've got to have. No torture you have to, you know, endure. Aside from being able to teach, there's really no qualities of elders that should not be normal for every single Christian. And so let's do this. Let's see this for a few minutes as a list that's kind of a picture of what a mature believer is to look like. That this is what you and I are to look like. Aside from being able to teach. This is just what we're to look like as we grow in Christ. And so let's, let's look at it. Let's, let's think about our own selves for just a moment. All, all Christians, all Christians are called to live lives of holiness beyond reproach. We're all called to that. We're all called to be faithful to our spouse, fully devoted. If you are a wife, you are to be a one man kind of woman. If you are a husband, you are to be a one woman kind of man. That's not just true of church leaders. It's to be true of all of us. Right? And all of us are called to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. This is how we're called to live. All of us. We're called to not be addicted to much wine or any other drug or habit or lust or craving. It's not just elders, but all of us who are called to be gentle, not be violent, not be quarrelsome. And how true is that now, right now, in this Massive divide in our country with some gloating and some grumbling. Christians are to do neither. We're to be gracious because we serve the King of grace. And we're all called, all of us, to love our families well, to train our children, teaching them obedience and doing so. And catch this, what it says right there, with dignity. Like you can bully a child where you want them to go, but there's something different in training them and teaching them with dignity. And it's not just elders who should live faithfully before a watching world and seek to be respected. This is the call on all of us, as Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount. And so how are you doing on these? Like this is who elders have to be, but this is who you should be how are you doing on this? If this was a list of subjects on a report card, what would be the letter next to it in your life as it relates to being above reproach? A one, uh, if, you're, if you're a male, a, a one woman kind of man or a one man kind of woman. Uh, how, how are you doing? What's your grade being sober-minded and self-controlled and respectable, hospitable? What's your grade on not being a drunkard? Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, managing your household well, being mature, being well thought of by outsiders. What's your grade? But here's the good news. Because if you're like me, you probably have a couple of low scores on some of those. 
But the good news is that Jesus' grace and His love for us isn't based on us getting all A's or B's or even C's or D's or F's. Because when it's all said and done, we, we, we have all gotten an F. We are all sinners. We're all deserving of condemnation. But Jesus' love for us isn't based upon us performing up to some certain standard. He does call out these specifications that, that, a, that, that an elder must live this way, but there's grace always in failure. Because His love is based on that. It's not based upon you. It's based upon what Jesus did. And so if you are a believer, remember, you've been given, practically clothed with Christ's righteousness. With His obedience. He's given it to you. So when the Father looks at you, He doesn't see you in your mud and nastiness. He sees you clean and holy and blameless. Not because of what you've done, but what Jesus did. He's given it to you. And on the basis of that, now we seek to live out who He's made us to be. He's positionally cleaned us. He set us apart. He's made us this way. And now we seek to progressively walk that way. We don't just be like, I'm clean. I can do whatever I want. And I'm going to be forgiven. No, no, no. We pursue. We run hard. We make war on ourselves. Colossians 3. We put to death what is therefore sinful in us. But we remember Jesus' grace is greater than all our sins. And when He went to the cross, He didn't just die for... like. When he went to the cross, all of our sins were present. I mean, were future, right? Sometimes I'm like, well, Jesus could forgive me for that, but I, I, I've, I believed his name and, and, and now I've sinned again. So he forgave me for all that, but what about now? When he went to the cross, all your sins were future. And he died for them past, present, and future. And he still went knowing all that you would do. And so rejoice in that today. Seek to live this way, but rejoice that His love for you is such even when we fail, there's forgiveness and there's hope. And He'll dust us off and He'll say, come on, son. Come on, daughter. Let's go again. Let's, let's live this out. Because this list is really nothing different than the fruit of the Spirit when you think about it. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. We're all given the fruit of the Spirit. And so let's live it before a watching world. Let's be the church. Let's pray. Lord God, Christ is indeed our only sure foundation. But in your mercy, you have given us elders whose lives are to back up their words. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our current elders and our future elders. As they shoulder a burden and a responsibility of shepherding. And give us godly elders. When it's time. And help us to be wise and see who they are. Father, increase our witness in the world and grant us to be agents of reconciliation 
and agents of peace and graciousness to a broken and hostile world. Internationally, and even nationally now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.